Well, as we continue our sermon series this morning in Genesis, we are going to encounter Jacob's final speech of sorts to his family. He gathers his sons around him and he has some things to say. This section is often referred to as Jacob's blessing of his sons, although you'll notice in the bulletin that I put the word blessing in quotations. It's perhaps more of a prophecy and an oracle that that even contains some curses rather than just blessings. Passage follows chapter 48 in which Jacob blessed Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. I'd encourage you to go back and read chapter 48 this week as we see again the upside down nature of God's kingdom where once again the younger son is placed before the older son. I'll likely hit on that theme in our concluding sermon uh, on Genesis in a couple of weeks, but it's worth paying attention to that, that God reverses sort of the natural order and accomplishes his wishes, carries out his plans in the way that he desires. And so we arrive this morning at chapter 49, and the blessing continues. From Genesis chapter 49, I'll be reading verses 1 through 28. Genesis 49, 1 through 28. This is God's word to us. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury, so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend toward Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down among the sheep pens. When he sees how good is his resting place, And how pleasant is his land. He will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. 
Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. I look for your deliverance, Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. But his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber. Because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all of these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, in the evening he divides the plunder. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Let's pray. God, your word is true and it is good. And so may your word find our hearts to be receptive soil. May we receive your word with gladness and with humility. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned that this deathbed blessing from Jacob to his sons was, was more than just some nice words from father to children as the end draws near. These words were actually prophetic. They were an accurate description, a, a pulling back of the curtain of what would happen in the years ahead as this family would grow and expand and eventually move back to Canaan to reside. And the reality is that there, there's something to be learned from, maybe something to be gleaned from each of the 12 blessings or prophecies. But, but for our purposes today, I want to narrow our focus to three of these prophecies in particular. I'm focusing on, on these three because they seem to have particular meaning, particular application for us today. In other words, the message of Jacob in these three words of prophecy extend far beyond just their immediate context and have great meaning for us. Of course, these blessings or prophecies are really descriptions. We saw that as we read through them, the descriptions of what would come, of what life would be like for these brothers and for their descendants. And so allow me to share three of these descriptions that we see in our text with you today. And the first one is this, a description of the consequences of sin. We see this clearly in verses 3 through 7. In verse 3, Jacob addresses his eldest son, Reuben. If you recall, Reuben was the son who slept with Jacob's wife, Bilhah, in Genesis chapter 35. 
you know, I've mentioned before, this family is so dramatic. There's so many ups and downs that this encounter in Genesis 35 is really limited to like one verse. It's just sort of, it's mentioned, it's dropped there, uh, but, but it's, it's given almost no real estate in Genesis. But it's obvious that it, it, despite its uh, limitation to one verse, it was a big deal to Jacob. Reuben's betrayal and sin caused him to lose his place, to lose his status as the firstborn. We've talked several times, and I mentioned it earlier, about the importance of the firstborn imagery to Genesis. The firstborn son was the assumed family leader, the patriarch of the future. He was to receive a double share of the inheritance and a special blessing from his father. But but Reuben lost his status as the firstborn, the patriarch, the family leader, the carrier of the blessing because of his sin. And what's significant about this is that it didn't only affect Reuben. It also affected his children, his future grandchildren, both practically and spiritually. The double portion of the inheritance was to ensure that the family name, the family line, would remain prominent. And so one way to do that was to make sure that the the patriarch, the leader of the family, had enough resources, enough wealth to ensure that prominence. And so there was a clear financial consequence to his sin that was not only for him, but was also generational. Uh, But of course, there were spiritual consequences as well. In In a culture in which there was such a strong emphasis on family honor, everybody would have known that Reuben did something to lose his firstborn blessing. It would have been obvious. But the description of the consequences of sin doesn't end with Reuben. Traditionally, the the blessing and firstborn status uh, would then, if the the firstborn died or somehow, like Reuben, lost that status, it would then pass to the second son. But in verse 5, we see that sons 2 and 3 are also passed over with the family blessing. Simeon and Levi were the sons who, in their anger, violently avenged the rape of their sister Dinah, killing a whole community of men. Listen to verse 5 and following. It says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger. I will scatter them in Jacob, disperse them in Israel. If you remember when I preached on that text from Genesis 34, Jacob strongly condemned the violent actions of his sons. So Jacob passes over Simeon and Levi with the blessing and his prophecy would come true. He said, I will scatter them in Jacob. I will disperse them in Israel. And that's exactly what would happen to these two tribes as the years would pass. As the redemptive story and narrative unfolds, the Simeonites would eventually be absorbed by the tribe of Judah, and the Levites wouldn't receive their own land, but would be dispersed throughout the people of Israel. We could illustrate this very point dozens of different ways throughout Genesis. That our sin has consequences, and specifically that our sin doesn't only affect us. 
Sin has far-reaching effects. Our sin affects our children and all of our descendants. Some of you are trusting in Christ today because one of your grandparents or maybe one of your great-grandparents heard the gospel, repented of their sin, and turned to trust in Jesus. And that faith has been handed down for generations, but so too can our idolatry, can our sin, can our chasing of anything and everything other than Jesus, so too can our infatuation with money, our narcissism, our self-worship, or our worship of things in this world. And we aren't just talking about the moral realm here. The things that we worship today impact the faith of our children and our grandchildren, our neighbors, our friends, our church, our community, the the places that we choose to invest our time and our energy and our resources can impact lives for eternity or not. Think of that classic ancient prayer that I so often model for us, where we confess that we have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. In other words, sin isn't just those things that we do. It's not just immorality. It's not just bad actions and poor decisions. It's also the things that we don't do. It's the things that we should do, but we neglect. It's the things that we ignore because we're so busy doing other things. Our sin has consequences that reach far beyond just you and I. There's another description that we see in our text that I think is important and and valuable for us today, and and that's a a description of the coming king and his kingdom. Uh, In verse 8 of our text, the prophecy, the oracle, the blessing, shifts from those first three brothers, the first three sons who disqualified themselves, to the fourth son who has now become the recipient of the blessing the one through whom the promise would become reality. As I mentioned this, it's important to recognize that uh, this promise, this blessing, is purely by grace alone. Because we could make a strong argument for many reasons that this brother, too, should have been disqualified. But of course, God's blessing, God's goodness to us is always grace. It's never because of what we earn or deserve. And so in verse 8, we hear about this fourth brother who would receive the blessing. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Now there's, there's a play on words there that we miss out on in English. The name Judah means one who is praised. One who is praised. And if you think of verse 8 with that information, here's how it could read. Praised one your brothers will praise you. There's this play on words that we find in the blessing, but of course we know that the significance of Judah goes far beyond the fact that he would receive the praise of his brothers, and we see that in verse 10. Verse 10 says this, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nations shall be his. 
The scepter, of course, represents kingship, authority, preeminence. If you've ever, uh, if you've ever seen a scepter, you know it's that, that ornate staff, that large baton that's held by the king. It's the symbol of sovereignty and, and highest power. And so, so Jacob says that, that Judah will hold the scepter, that he is the leader. He is the one in charge. He is the highest authority in the family. And what's interesting is that he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah until. Until what? Our text says, until he to whom it belongs shall come. We've now found ourselves, uh, you didn't know it, but in what is probably the most debated verse in the Old Testament, uh, at least when it comes to translation. You may remember reading this, or if you have a copy of, for example, the King James or the New American Standard translation, it would say something like this, the scepter won't depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And so many have treated that name Shiloh as a reference to Jesus, and even maybe a hidden name for Jesus in the Old Testament. But it seems like a significant difference in translation, doesn't it? Those two things seem very different. In reality, there are actually, I would argue, four legitimate ways that this verse could be translated. And that's why there's so much debate about it among scholars. And all four of those require us to understand a little bit of the way that Hebrew works. And I'm not going to take the time to dive into the way that the Hebrew language works today. And so you might just have to trust me a little bit here. But I, I point this out because this is a verse that I've had people share with me about errors in translation or maybe differences that you see in the scriptures. It's a verse that, that throws people off a little bit, that causes confusion. And, and I would argue uh, that there's strong evidence to support uh, the way that our text translates it today. That the scepter won't depart from Judah until he to whom it belongs shall come. There's evidence uh, of that from the Hebrew people who lived before Jesus, that that's the way that they understood this verse. And so I, I tend to lean that way. But at the end of the day, it, it actually, while it is a significant difference in translation, it actually doesn't matter all that much. And by the way, if that's something that interests you, stop in and see me someday. I'd love to go on that journey with you. I'm a nerd that way. But I, I'm going to spare the rest of you this morning who really aren't all that interested. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter all that much. All four of those plausible interpretations of this verse end in the same place. That Judah will hold on to the scepter until someone greater than Judah takes it. Who could that be? Who is the one that, that Jacob is saying will eventually possess the scepter, who will eventually be king? And we could answer that question in a couple of different ways. In the immediate context, we could look at King David, right? David, who would come from the line of Judah, would assume the throne, and, and the scriptures from then on would speak of the throne as being David's throne. But we know there's more to Jacob's words than just to point us forward to King David. Think of Isaiah chapter 9, a passage that we hear so often during the season of Advent, leading up to Christmas. Isaiah 9, Isaiah speaks of the coming king, the one who would rule on David's throne forever. Listen to Isaiah chapter 9, 
passage we're familiar with. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Jacob describes in his blessing to Judah the king and the kingdom who would come through the line of his son Judah. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will, and then listen to these verses, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. There's so much imagery packed into these verses. We could spend all day uh, unpacking this, but but it's it's really an illustration for us. Uh, Jacob is painting a picture for us of the kingdom that this future king would bring about. It's a description of plenty, of celebration, of extravagance, of abundance. Look at verse 11. He will tether his donkey to a vine, to the choicest vine. This is, this is nonsense, actually. Nobody would, nobody would do this. To tie a donkey to the best and most productive vine in the vineyard, that, what would the donkey do? The donkey's going to eat the vine and eat the grapes and eat all the leaves off of it. In fact, you would never even let an animal into a vineyard. Vineyards would be surrounded by, by a rock wall to keep livestock out. But it makes a fascinating illustration that the vines in this vineyard would be so plentiful. The vineyard would be so full, so overwhelmingly productive that, that, that it's just tie the donkey to the vine. Let him eat. Let him eat the choicest vine without concern. This is all hyperbole, of course. Intentional exaggeration to to drive home a point. And and it continues. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Again, nobody would actually do this, right? Uh, maybe, Maybe some of you have been to one of those fancy restaurants where when you order water, they ask you if you want the regular water or you want the fancy imported water. I remember hearing uh, someone uh, talking with somebody fairly recently who uh, was paying, and I have no idea why, was paying to import drinking water from Slovenia. It was like $30 a liter to import this water from Slovenia. It probably came out of the tap over there. This would be like, like using that fancy imported drinking water from Slovenia to wash your clothes with. Except it's even more ridiculous because obviously... Washing your clothes in wine would probably cause some other issues, some color issues. But again, this is the whole idea. It's intended to be exaggeration, intended to be on the verge of ridiculous. The wine produced from this vineyard is so plentiful. It's it's everywhere. 
no limits, abundant. In case you haven't made the connection in your mind, a, a vineyard in scripture is imagery for first the kingdom of Israel, but then ultimately for the kingdom of God. And here's what we discover. Some of this abundance was true of the nation of Israel. Some of this was true of that kingdom established under King David. But, but Jacob is really pointing us forward through the nation of Israel, through King David and, and his kingdom, to the future kingdom of the true and better king. And when the true and better king, when the descendant of Judah and of David arrives, what is his first ministry appearance? What's his first public miracle? He shows up at a wedding in Cana where they were out of wine. And so what does Jesus do? He makes wine, and not just a little bit of wine. He takes six large stone jars of water. These were the devices they, they used to, to store all of their drinking water, uh, somewhere around a thousand bottles of wine. Not just average wine, the best wine is what the story tells us. The choice wine is the word that the banquet master uses. Don't think that any of this imagery is accidental. It's not. Jesus fulfilled at Cana and Galilee, Jesus fulfilled the words of Jacob, at least in part, by making wine so plentiful that they would have had enough to wash their clothes in it. Jacob is describing the king and the kingdom who would come through his son, Judah. And this kingdom is one in which grace is plentiful. The kingdom of God is one in which his blessings are unending, in which, as David would say, we lack nothing. And so when Jesus in the upper room takes a glass of wine and he says, this, is, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, we aren't surprised, right? Jacob foretells of a kingdom in which the blood that purchased our forgiveness and our eternal life is plentiful and is free for all who will receive. How is the kingdom that would come through Judah to David and ultimately to Jesus described in our text? Abundant, never lacking, perfect. And that, of course, is the kingdom that Jesus will bring about once and for all when he returns. There's one more description that I think is helpful that we see in our text as we close this morning, and that's a description of the blessing of God that comes through the deliverer. Judah isn't the only brother to receive a great blessing from his father. Jacob also speaks in great detail about the blessing that is for Joseph and for Joseph's sons. Verse 24 says, because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and the womb, 
your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. And then listen to this line, let all these rest on the head of Joseph. Remember where we're at in the story. Joseph is second in command of all Egypt. But more than that, Joseph has been set up in the redemptive story as the savior, as the deliverer, the mediator, the rescuer of God's people. And what I think you'll you'll recognize when you see how this plays out is that the blessings of God came to all of the Hebrew people through Joseph in his role as mediator, savior, deliverer. God pours out his blessings upon Joseph, and they come to the rest of the people through him. I want you to listen to the words from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then hear this, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As people of grace, we are recipients of the blessings of God. When we are in Christ, we have received the full measure of God's blessing. Blessed by God, who who has blessed us, how? Ephesians says, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing. When we are in Christ, we have received the full measure of God's blessing. Now, Now, don't mistake this for our Americanized understanding of blessing. Look at verse 23 of our text. It says, with bitterness, speaking of Joseph, with bitterness, Archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. This isn't an an everything goes right all the time kind of blessing. This is the blessing of God in spite of our suffering, in the midst of our trials. And this is such a helpful picture of, of what we've been given. We have everything in Christ. For all who confess their sin, for all who have come to understand what they deserve because of their sin apart from Christ. For all who have turned to Jesus and received his grace and mercy poured out on the cross for sinners, we have everything in Christ. We lack nothing. Everything lies in front of us. The true blessing, I would argue that the true blessing for us today that comes through Jacob to Joseph, through Jesus to us, is the blessing to be set free from the enemies of this world. When we are in Christ, we are free to look at, even at death, the greatest of enemies, and to say, you have no ultimate power over me. Because there is a far greater kingdom that is coming. A kingdom in which death is unknown. The lion of the tribe of Judah has devoured the enemy. And so we have every blessing in Christ because we know how the story ends. We're free to live 
from that place of knowing that Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, we are given everything in him. We're free to live each day with firm confidence, with steadfast assurance of that vineyard kingdom that we will one day inhabit. And so today, as we do every week, we turn our hearts toward the true deliverer, the one to whom Jacob and Judah and Joseph point us. And when we are in Christ, we have everything. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word to us today. That we need to be reminded of our sin, of the, the consequence of our sin. Because we know that until we see our sin, until we believe what your word says, that we are sinners in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. When we know and we believe and we confess that our sin still plagues our lives, until then we will never see our need for the deliverer. Lord, we thank you that there's, there's so much more to this story than just the consequence of our sin. That you've also promised a king, a savior, a deliverer. And we know that all of those are wrapped up into one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we do repent of our sin today and we believe what your word says. That Jesus came as king and savior and deliverer for us that he shed his blood for us, that every blessing is ours by faith alone. So give us faith to believe the good news today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.